0: If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of Acts, to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 for our time together this morning as we open God's Word. We are right now in the middle of a sermon series here at Crosslink called Committed. And we are talking specifically about what commitment looks like in our life. Specifically, what does it look like to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to His body the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we've been talking a lot about that. And of course, we live in a culture today, uh, frankly, where we struggle with commitment, right? Like we struggle with uh, knowing what to commit to. Uh, we struggle with, with even wanting to commit at times. Sometimes there's a lot of things going on in life. And so instead of committing to something, even that we know is important, we prefer to keep our options open. And so we wait to the last possible minute because something good may come up, something better may happen along the way. And so we, we often fail to commit. Sometimes we've got to commit because we don't like the cost that's involved. It's going to ask too much of us. There's going to be too many responsibilities or requirements. And so it's easier to sit comfortably on the sidelines than to commit and to get all in. And we see that, of course, in the context of relationships. We see that in the context of responsibilities in society, but also, unfortunately, at times, even in the church. I've been reminded, though, over the course of this series and over the course of study, and even in illustrations and moments in my own life, that frankly, we're not going to grow the way that God wants us to grow. We're not going to develop in the ways that God wants us to develop without commitment. In fact, we all recognize the need for commitment. We all value the the results and the fruit of commitment. And yet at the same time, we still struggle with this idea of commitment. I have been reminded of that personally uh, in my own life. About six years ago, I received a phone call from a pastor here in the state of Virginia who has a role that really works with a lot of pastors? In fact, uh, 722 churches and the pastors that are represented. And this gentleman um, helps to oversee that ministry. And so he called me and five other pastors. I'm sorry, four other pastors, six of us total. And he asked us if we would come to meet with him uh, to have a time of prayer and a time of conversation about some specific things that God was putting on his heart. And and it was in in in, in that specific focus was something that was heavily on my heart. And so. Um, I I agreed. I said, absolutely, let's get together. We set the date, we made a plan, and that was that. Three weeks later, he called us all back and he said, guys, I am so sorry. I have overcommitted myself. I have double booked something, but I think we can still meet him. So I asked him, well, what's going on? He said, I have actually committed to go to a missions ministry to a golf tournament. There's gonna be like 100 guys there, they're raising funds for this missions thing, and we can still talk through what's on my heart, and we can still have a time of prayer, but I'm asking you, can we move our meeting from a conference room to a golf course? Well, just to be perfectly honest, most people would be like, yes, absolutely, count me in. But there's a little known secret about me, and that is that I'm not a golfer, all right? Like, I'm just not. Like, if I'm the guy at the tee, if you're on the next, like, five holes over, you better hope I don't hit you with a golf ball, okay? Because when I swing, I have no idea where that thing's going. But anyway, I said, sign me up. I'm a weak golfer. Put me with somebody who knows what they're doing. And so we showed up. We were a small group of six people. We were paired up in groups of two. And literally, I was kind of, I got to know a new pastor, but every time we had time to talk in between the various holes of golf, we would talk about what was on his heart. And lots of, actually lots of good have come out of that ministry meeting. But I remember being paired up with this one guy and I am not exaggerating. I'm not a professional, I'm not a golfer. But the very first time he stepped up to the tee and swung the golf club and hit the ball, just by the way, the sound of that ball hit that club, and the way that that ball drove straight forward and as far as it did, I thought, oh my goodness, this guy is phenomenal. Like he was a phenomenal golfer. And so, so we're, and I'm kind of watching him and I'm watching everybody else on this, this tournament and I'm realizing like nobody else is remotely as good as this guy. And so finally by like the fifth or sixth hole, I asked him like, how did you become so good at golf? Like you are a pastor. How do you have this kind of time, you know? Like Really? And he told me, he said, well, actually, he said before God called me to the ministry, I was a golfer in a state school in South Carolina. He got a full-ride scholarship to be a golfer, and it was out of that process that God called him to ministry. And so for the next 12 holes, I asked him everything I could possibly think to ask him. I mean, I was asking questions about my form, my swing, the angle, the clubs everything. And so for the next 12 holes, in my opinion, I got the best golf advice I've ever gotten from a professional golfer. Okay. We played that day and it all went well. My score at the end of the day looked great because he was my partner and completely covered up the fact that I was a handicap. But anyway, (laughs) we got to the end of that, that, that day. And he told me, I'll never get his words. I was like, dude, I was like, I, you've told me all these different things and I have gotten no good today out on the golf course. And he told me, he said, Matt, it's really simple. If you'll commit to it and do it, you'll be good. He said, Actually, you've got enough skills in you and you've got baseball experience and background. You've got enough in that context that if you'll commit to it and if you'll work on it at least once a week, you're going to be good. Well, here's the problem six years have passed, and I'm no better today than I was then. I'm not. In fact, I would even argue that I'm worse. I play a mean game of putt putt, but I am not about to join the PGA Tour. Why? Frankly, because I'm not really that committed. I don't really care. All right, I mean, it's fun, it's cool, it's great, I enjoy the fellowship, but that's not really my top priority. At the same time, I can look back at another situation in my life and realize, you know what, when I committed to it, like, like it's cool to see what God did in that season of my life. I was 15 years old, I was a teenager, I was just starting high school. I remember going to our youth group one night and I remember sitting there in our youth group on a Wednesday night, there was no activity, there was no growth, we were just kind of sitting there and it was just normal Wednesday night with nothing else going on. And I remember that moment sitting there on a Wednesday night and looking around me at my handful of buddies that were there and noticing that one of these guys over here played the guitar and another guy was starting to learn the drums and another guy played the piano But we had no other activity really within our youth group. And I remember sitting there one night and thinking, you know what? We could start a youth-like praise band, like a worship team, kind of like what we have here on Sunday mornings. We could start that, and that would get some of our youth involved. And we could get people to sing, and then we'll see what could happen with that. And so I asked them to do it, and we all got together, and they played, and I sang. And the problem is, when you have an electric guitar and you have a drummer but no bass player, it sounds really, 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 really empty. And so we began to think, well, who could play? Who could play? Nobody could play. And so finally, I remember having this idea. I went to a gentleman in our church who played the bass guitar. His name was Tom Bush. And I said, Tom, would you teach me how to play the bass guitar? He said, absolutely not. Well, that's, that'll do some encouragement for you, right? And so I was like, well, would you teach me at, at least three chords? And he sat there on his bass guitar, and he taught me the very difficult chords on the bass guitar, no offense, bass players, G, C, and D. And I determined in that moment that, you know what, I can learn these three chords, and if I can learn these three chords, like, we can start playing. And so for the next few weeks, like, I remember every song we did was in the chord of G, C, and D. And then I went back to that bass player, and I said, would you, would you tell me three more songs? And over the next six months, God allowed me literally to learn how to play the bass guitar so that we could lead worship. And in that context, our youth group, God began to bless and he began to grow. And then we began to lead at times in the adult worship service and at times we'd go to other churches and God did some really cool things in that. What's the difference in those two situations? In one situation, I really wasn't committed, but in the other situation, frankly, even as a young man, I was thinking, what can we do and how can we do it? And I was completely committed recognizing this is something that God is wanting me to do. The question I asked for us this morning is as a child of God, are you truly committed? Are you committed to Jesus Christ? Yes, always, oh, he's our savior. Yes, he died on the cross for my sins, he rose again. But are you committed to him as your Lord and as your leader? And are you committed to the church? Are you committed to his body that he himself gave his life for? We see in Acts chapter four of the early church that they were certainly committed. We've seen already that they were committed to experience Jesus in worship. We've seen clearly how they met together on the first day of the week. They would come together for the purpose of prayer They came together for the purpose of praising God. We've seen then beyond that, how they engaged in community and how they continued not just in the temple, but they continued from house to house, breaking bread and fellowshipping together and praying together. And the Bible says they had favor amongst all the people. Yes, they experienced Jesus in worship, but they also engaged in community. They were connected to one another. But the third commitment I want us to consider from Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five is the commitment to edify the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question I would ask us this morning is very simple, and that is this, in your life, with the gifts and with the talents, with the callings that God has given you, with the experiences that God is giving you, in what ways are you edifying and building up the body of Christ? Acts chapter four, if you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're gonna begin in verse 31. The Bible says this. And when they had prayed, once again, the early church, we see it again. They're praying. The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas, that's how I'm going to refer to him today, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement who owned a tract of land, he sold it, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pause for just a moment. This is a beautiful picture of the early church out of the love they had for the Lord now demonstrating that love for one another and the way that they're unified and the way that they're ministering to one another. But Acts chapter five, verse one tells us a change was coming. Sin was about to enter the church. Verse one, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Listen to Peter's statement. You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Can you imagine the sight? And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came into the assembly, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to even associate with him. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're so thankful for this morning. We're so thankful for the freedom that we have to come here today, and we're so thankful for the freedom and the power of your word to go forth today. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and lives in all the ways that are needed. God, where encouragement and comfort and help are needed, may you give it. Where instruction and wisdom and discernment are needed, may you give it. But Father, may our, where in the areas in our life that our eyes need to be open. Where we need to be convicted and need to be changed. May you bring that today as well. And we'll pray, pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Edify the church. Edify the church. It may sound strange to hear the message this morning entitled Edify the Church, when in reality, as we're reading through Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, not one time do we see the word edify. The word edify in our English language literally means to build up. It gives us the idea of someone who is encouraging and building up, someone that is kind of uh, lifting someone up, so to speak. And the word edify is a word that's used many times throughout the New Testament. In fact, on 20 different occasions in various forms, whether it's edify or edification, we see this word given. Every time we see this word given, at least most of those times, it's given in the context of something that is to happen corporately and cooperatively. In other words, this calling of edify is not just something individually that we build ourselves up. It's describing what happens when we come together, when we are connected together, when each of us is using our gifts and our calling and our uh, experiences, if you will, for the purpose of building up one another. In fact, many times we often refer to that as mutual edification. It's the picture and the reminder that we are to be ministering to one another and building one another up so that we might stand strong and continue growing in our faith. In fact, Paul encouraged this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Listen to these words of instructions. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and do what? And build up one another just as you also are doing. This is a part of our calling. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is part of our calling to build up one another. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, we were reminded of the church there that they were facing some conflict and some division. There were some things that they didn't see eye to eye on. And in that context, Paul reminds them of the purpose, the important purpose of building up one another. Here's what he says in Romans 14, verse 19. He says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We're not going to see eye to eye on everything. We're not going to agree on the color of the walls or the color of the carpet or whether or not we should have chandeliers hanging from the ceiling necessarily. But when it comes to the main things, we must make sure that we are coming together in unity to build up one another. In fact, this idea of building up one another is so powerfully illustrated by the Apostle Paul. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Paul gives us the illustration of a body and how literally our body is made up of all kinds of different members and different parts from our fingers and our toes to our eyes and our ears to even the the vital organs that you don't literally physically see right now. And he shows us that to say, all of this is working together, every joint, every muscle, every tendon, every ligament, every, every bone, all of it's working together for the health and for the growth of the whole body. It's within that image that God is showing us in Acts chapter 4 what happens when the body of Christ, the church, is edifying, is edifying one another and building up one another. At the same time, and very sadly, we also see in Acts chapter 5 what happens in a church and what happens when people do not edify the body but instead are focused on themselves. God wants us, church, to be a group of people, a body of believers who've been born again. We've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is committed to building up one another. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. If you do agree with that, I want to encourage you today to focus with me on God's word. If you don't agree with that today, I want to encourage you to focus with me on God's word. What does God's word say about this early church And and what do we see even as a warning in Acts chapter 5? I think there's two primary points from the text that we've read this morning. And I think that in that, I believe in that, that God will speak to us today. Number one, I want you to consider this morning the evidence of a spirit-filled life. The evidence of a spirit-filled life. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 that we are not to be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, the context of that command is that we are to be being filled, That is an ongoing process as we humble ourselves and surrender to the Lord and the Holy Spirit uh, fills us and takes control in our life. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible tells us in verse 31, the last last verse of that previous passage and the first that we've read today, that the Holy Spirit came and filled the believers that were gathered together. Now, it's important for us to understand the context of what was happening in Acts chapter 4. Many of you were here a few weeks ago, we began reading in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and the Holy Spirit, of course, was there and and God was working and moving in a powerful way. That day, 3,000 souls were saved. People were baptized, lives were transformed and lives were changed and they began to meet from then house to house. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. God was working incredibly. In Acts chapter 3, the church begins to face its first opposition, its first satanic attack. It took place as Peter and John were walking into the temple that day. The Bible says there was a lame man outside the temple and he was begging for alms. He's asking for money. He's asking for help and asking for assistance. The Bible says that Peter looked at him and he said, Hey, buddy, that's my interpretation of it. I don't have silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And the Bible says instantly the lame man, he did not just get up, but he got up and he began to leap for joy and began to celebrate the fact that God had healed him. Now, don't you know this morning, if you come in here today, lame, where you literally cannot walk and you were to leave today celebrating and leaping, we would all be amazed and in wonder. And that's what happened there. In Acts chapter 3, this man was gloriously and miraculously healed. And as a result of that, the crowd began to gather around. What did Peter do? Peter began to preach. Peter began to tell them about Jesus. He said, listen, let me tell you something right now. It's in the name of Jesus that this man was healed. It's in the name of Jesus this man's been made whole. Yes, he's been like this for a long time, but I'm here to tell you, it's in the powerful name of Jesus, who's the Lord and Savior of all. He can do anything and everything. It's in the name of Jesus this man stands and walks and leaps before you today. He told them the gospel message about Jesus, how he came, he died, he rose again from the grave. All who believe in him will be forgiven and saved and be made a brand new creation. And of course, there were many who believed, but in Acts chapter 4, we learned that the Jewish leaders didn't like it. They didn't like them preaching in the name of Jesus. After all, these same Jewish leaders had just crucified Jesus less than two months earlier. They didn't like that. You're, you mean to tell me, Peter, that this man is healed in the name of the person that we call a blasphemer and a liar? You mean to tell me, Peter, that this man has been gloriously changed and all these people are believing in the very one that we have crucified? And Peter said, that's exactly what I'm saying to you. But they didn't like it. They took Peter and John, the Bible says, into custody. They arrested them. They threatened them. You can't talk about Jesus. You can't preach in the name of Jesus. You know that you're just lying. And they begin to threaten them. If you keep saying these things, if you keep doing these things, we're going to do even further persecution. And the Bible says that Peter and John were then released. They went to the early church. What was the early church doing? What they're always doing. They're praying. They're seeking God. They're fellowshipping together. They're praising God for what he's done. And so the church begins to pray, and they begin to pray. I love this. Listen. What do you pray for when you're going through a hard time? What do you pray for when you are coming against a direct attack from Satan? What do you pray for when you're in the midst of persecution? Please hear me, they didn't pray, oh God, would you please make our lives easy? Oh God, please get us out of this mess. God, you know these bullies are coming against me and I feel like I'm being torpedoed. Oh God, would you take it all away? No, that's not what they prayed. They prayed, God, Would you give us boldness? Would you give us confidence? to take your name all throughout the city. God, would you give us courage to share the truth of your word with others? God, would you do this? And the Bible says in Acts chapter four, verse 31, that the place where they gathered was shaken and the Holy Spirit came and filled them, which means he came and he took over, he took control. And the control of the Holy Spirit manifested itself in three ways in Acts chapter four. And I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, they spoke the word of God with boldness. What The first manifestation of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, as the Holy Spirit came and filled them, is that the Bible says, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now think of this for just a moment. The very same people who had crucified Jesus are the very same people who are saying, don't you tell anybody about him. Don't you tell anybody about him. Don't you tell anybody that he said that he would literally, that if you tear down his temple, that three days later he'd be taken out. Don't you tell anybody the truth of what he said. Don't you tell anybody that the grave is actually empty. Don't you tell anybody the miracles that he's done. And Peter and John responded back, wait a second. How can we help but to speak the things that we have seen and heard? But I think what's happening that's so powerful in Acts chapter 4 is this. We've seen already the courage and the conviction and the boldness of Peter and John and of the other apostles, but what we hadn't yet seen is the courage and the boldness of the church. And in Acts chapter 4, the Bible makes it clear, they all began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me ask you a question. Do you have boldness to speak the word of God? Do you have boldness to share the truth of the gospel with others? Do you have boldness to talk about the things of God, even amongst ourselves as believers? I believe what's happening in this moment is that the Holy Spirit is moving and the Holy Spirit is in control. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they begin to talk aloud to each other the truth of the gospel. They begin to go from this place all throughout Jerusalem from house to house. What are they doing? They're not just hanging out and enjoying barbecue ribs. No, that sounds good though. What they're doing is this. They're coming together and they're talking about the good things of the Lord. They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing the miracles that he's doing. But it wasn't just from house to house. It was from street corner to street corner and eventually from city to city. And then, of course, we're reminded that they took it even to the ends of the earth. So, Pastor, what are you saying? I am saying that when the Holy Spirit of God fills the life of the believer, when the Holy Spirit of God fills the church, one of the greatest evidences is the way that there is a boldness and a conviction to make the gospel known to those around us. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we will not just be a group of people that come together, that we won't just have a banner and a title for our name, but that we will be a lighthouse set upon a hill for which literally with boldness and with conviction, we're able to stand and proclaim the truth of the word of God. Acts chapter 14 says it this way. It summarizes it in this simple passage about their boldness of the word of God. They spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, Acts 14, verse three, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Listen to verse seven. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Is that true in our lives today? It wasn't about the calling of Peter and John, though their calling was very clear. What was happening in the early church is that every member of it became a missionary of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is God's calling upon us. One of the demonstrations and evidences of the Holy Spirit in control of our life is that we will be a faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the Holy Spirit will be so in control of our lives that we can live and declare as did the Apostle Paul, that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Not only do we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the way they spoke the word of God, but also we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the way that they surrendered all that they had to the Lord. This this early church, these early believers, man, they they surrendered all that they had to the Lord. When I read this next statement in verse 32, it really causes me to pause. In fact, in the context of our culture today, it causes me to pause and it causes me to examine Can this be said of me? Can this be said of us? Listen to what the Bible says in verse 32. The congregation, now the scripture says here, and, which reminds us then that all of this is a part of the structure. Now that the Holy Spirit has come and the Holy Spirit has filled them and the Holy Spirit is in control, everything that follows in Acts chapter 4 is simply the outward working. It's the evidence. It's the result of what happens when the Holy Spirit's in control. They speak the word of God God with boldness and... The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. They spoke the word of God with boldness, but they also did something else, and that is they surrendered all that they had to the Lord. Now, of course, the Bible tells us here at the beginning of this verse that they had a unity. This was not a, an, uh, a unity of organization, this is a unity of the Holy Spirit working in their heart and life. This is not because the, the apostles were saying, well, you got to feel this way, act this way, do this. No, this is the Holy Spirit of God unifying them in the body of Christ. Acts chapter 2, we saw last week that those who believed were gathered together and they had all things in common. And we see once again in chapter 4, verse 32, that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. They were completely Unified. Just like Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world that's broken and flawed and sinful and in need of salvation. Lord, I'm, I know you've called them to it. There's a purpose for them, but I pray that they will be unified and one just like you and I are one. And we see that happening in the life of the early church. They're completely unified. But not only that, the Bible tells us another statement in verse 32. So much was their unity that not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. In other words, everything in their life that they would have had the temptation to say is mine, they didn't. In fact, I think the scripture is pointing to us here a simple reality, that they recognize everything that was theirs was really God's. God had given it to them. God had entrusted it to them. And as a result, they were merely stewards of it. It wasn't about their own rights. It wasn't about their own privileges. It wasn't about their own position or their own possessions. No, it was ultimately saying, this is God's. And as a result, whatever God desires of it, he can have. And so literally, they lived their life with the idea of having open hands, that every penny, that every possession, whatever it is that God entrusted to them, was not their own, but ultimately it was God's. Now, I have to be honest with you this morning as I was thinking about that statement that none of them claimed that what they had was their own. I was thinking about how different that is than than toddlers. All right? Anybody been around a toddler lately? You, you know, maybe you've got toddlers in your home, toddlers who are grandkids, maybe you've got a niece or a nephew, or maybe you serve in our children's ministry, and you're like, Absolutely. Toddlers have, they often use the original bad four-letter word, and that word is mine, right? But toddlers have a way of saying that word mine on a regular basis. And so I was listening to a podcast the other day, and someone was talking about how, how easy it is for us in our culture to be focused on mine, and they, they shared something that I had heard a long time ago, and I thought I'd share it with you, but they called it the property laws of a toddler. Uh, maybe you'll get a kick out of this. I did. Maybe it's because I could relate to it in some ways, but the property laws of a toddler go like this. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm building something, like Legos, for example, all of the pieces are automatically mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, guess what? It's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you are playing with something and put it down, it's mine. Number 10, if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> Property laws of a toddler. Fairly accurate, I would imagine, right? We, can, we laugh because we can relate to it. We've been a toddler before. And many of us have raised toddlers before. Like we understand that, right? Right? Well, sadly, that kind of mentality of it's mine often even infiltrates our life as a believer, as a church. But God, it's it's mine. God, it's it's mine. It's it's all these different things. So I'm wondering, like, what would this Acts 4 early church mentality look like today? Like, what would it look like today if literally if everything that God entrusted to us, we held with open hands and we said, God, it's not mine. It's yours. Like, what would that literally look like? Uh, Like, for example, instead of us focusing on my vehicle and my car and and my, you know, sweet ride or whatever, what would it look like if we looked at our vehicle and said, no, God, it's yours? What would you have me to do with it? How would you have me to bring glory to you through? What would be the purpose you could accomplish through this vehicle? What what would that look like? In fact, I was reminded of that this past Friday. Normally, throughout the week, um, as the Lord allows time, I will call the guests who visit Crosslink from the previous Sunday. And sometimes i only get an answer machine, but sometimes we have great conversations and are able to pray together. And this past Friday, for example, I called someone who had visited here. Literally, this was this individual's second time here. And so I, I just called. I didn't know this person. It was, to, it was just a name on a card. I didn't meet them when they came the first time. We began to talk and the individual, the lady, began to ask questions about the church. And, and we talked about those things for a while, and, and she's not from this area, but she's going to be in this area until the end of the year. And, and in the process of being here, she said, she's a pastor. She said, as you were preaching and as you were sharing, like, I was completely in agreement. Like, God, is there's some things in my life that God's wanted to do. And so she asked me, she said, listen, I'm retired. She said, God's blessed me. Her exact words, God's blessed me with, a, with a, like a, a nice vehicle. It's easy to get in and out of. And I was thinking after your message on Sunday, is there any way I could use my vehicle for the Lord? Now, here's the deal. I didn't preach about that last Sunday. Not one time did I preach and say, you know what, if you got a vehicle, you should." no, that's not what I said. But the Holy Spirit was working in her heart. And so she specifically asked me, she said, do you know of any uh, senior saints in the church, senior citizens in the church, or any individuals who are handicapped who could potentially need help getting to and from doctor's appointments? Or do you know of any shut-ins in the church that maybe I could go get groceries for them and Help in that way. I've, I've, got, I've got time on my hands and I've got space in this vehicle. Literally, she's going to be here to like December, January timeframe. And, and I was wondering, could, could God use me in that way? You know what she was saying? What she, this is a guest at Crossing. You know what she was articulating? She was articulating the reality that she recognizes that God has given her her time and she's given her her various skills. And God, in this context, has literally given her a vehicle. And she's in essence saying, it's not mine, it's the Lord's. How might I use it for the Lord? What would it look like if we looked at our house and we said, Oh, well, this is my house and I work hard for it and I earn it and I pay for it every day week with the mortgage or whatever? Like, what would it look like instead of saying it's mine and said, You know what? This is God's. How would God have me to open these doors to, to reach my neighbors? How would God have me to open the doors to bring other believers in and practice hospitality? Like What would it truly look like if we had this idea and this mindset, this action of the early church, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit, not only did they speak the word of God with boldness, but they surrendered all they had to the Lord. Third thing, a third evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in their life in Acts chapter four is that not only did they surrender all that they had to the Lord, but thirdly, they served one another with gladness. They served one another with gladness. If you're still with me right now, would you say, all right? right. They served the Lord with gladness. Now, 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 think of this for just a moment. We see this very practically in this text in the way that many of the people showed generosity. But I will be clear to say, while we are all called to generosity, there are many other ways in which we can serve of using our talents and our gifts and our skills. Here's the simple reality. The simple reality is they were in relationship with each other, and because they were in relationship with each other, they began to be aware of the needs within the body, and then they, instead of turning a blind eye, they jumped in, they jumped in, and they got involved, and they did what they could for the glory of God and for the good of others. Verse 34 to 35 says this, "'For there was not a needy person among them, "'for all whose feet and of land or houses "'would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales,' And lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, largely, we're seeing this in this passage in the context of generosity, but there are many other ways to demonstrate that the early church, in this moment, they're serving one another with gladness. Literally, as needs came up within the body. As needs came up in the context of the church, and many of those needs are very practical and very simple, and at times even financial, what was happening in this moment is that people who had land or houses or possessions, people had these things literally, they were selling them and they were bringing the proceeds. Why? Because they weren't focused on themselves. They weren't focused on their rights. It wasn't about their privileges. It wasn't about their possession. No, they brought these things and they gave them, the Bible says, they laid at the apostles' feet. Why? Because they wanted the needs to be met. They wanted the church to be edified. They wanted the body of Christ to be built up. They wanted the church. Church to be what God wanted her to be. So they're serving one another. If Philippians chapter two, verses three through four encourages that. It says literally, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what they're doing. They're looking out for one another. The question then causes me to pause and ask, am I? Am I serving others in the body of Christ? Am I looking with open eyes at their needs and am I willing to do whatever it would take to glorify God and to build up and to encourage and to meet the need of my brother or my sister? Or do I excuse why I shouldn't? Oh, somebody else can do that. Surely someone else is more qualified. Surely someone else can meet this task. And I I can come up with a million reasons of why not me. And the reality though is that when God puts it before us, When God makes us aware, that awareness is often his invitation to get involved and to do what he's put before us to do. The question I wonder in this moment then is, where did they get this? Where where did they get this idea? Because the Bible makes it clear that the apostles weren't demanding this of them. Peter and John didn't come back and say, all right, guys, now we need to meet one another. That's not what he said. Peter and John didn't come back and say, see, well, there's, there's all these needs in the body and there's opportunities to serve. And so as a result, like you have to do that. Not, that's not what happened. They didn't force this upon the people. So where do the people understand this? Well, remember they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working and the Holy Spirit's moving. And I cannot help but to wonder if it was not that the Holy Spirit would even remind them You call Jesus your Lord. You you call Jesus your boss. You call Jesus the director and the savior of your life, the ruler of your heart and life. but, But do you remember what Jesus did? What did Jesus do? Well, John chapter 13 is, of course, one of many illustrations. But do you remember the story in John chapter 13 as Jesus is gathered there in the upper room with his disciples? He gets into the room and they observe a meal together. If you remember the story in John chapter 13 and Interesting statement is that in Jewish culture, whenever people entered a home, certainly before they would go about the room and certainly before a meal, when they would enter that Jewish home, their feet would first be washed. It's a very practical need. Why? Because their feet would be filthy. Even today in our culture, I might come into someone's home, they might invite me in and as soon as I am invited in, I might see that the head of the house takes off his shoes and he lays them at the door. And when that happens, guess what I do? I pray, oh Lord, did I wash? No, I'm kidding. No, like I take off my shoes and I lay them there at the, at the door. In that culture, they wash feet. Jesus and the disciples have all gone about their business. They've all sat there and had their meal. Nobody's washed feet. And Jesus is distinctly aware of this. So the meal gets done, Jesus knowing that their feet had not yet been washed, no one had been willing to do it. In Jewish culture, normally the task of washing feet was not only reserved for a slave, but it was reserved for a Gentile slave. In other words, this sounds terrible, but it's true in that culture, the task of washing feet was reserved for the most despised slave in that culture. Jesus knows this, but he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he gets up from the meal and the Bible says he takes off his outer coat and he takes the towel and he wraps it around himself. And literally Jesus, picture the scene, the living son of God, he humbles himself and he takes the basin of water and he takes the disciples one at a time. Matthew, the tax collector and, and Peter, the fisherman, he takes them one at a time and he begins to pour water in their feet and then he takes the towel and he washes their filthy feet. He gets to Peter and Peter's like, Lord, no. Never shall you wash my feet. Never shall you have this humbling, humiliating act on my behalf. Never shall you do this. And, of course, Jesus had to teach him and to confront him in some ways. Jesus washed all their feet. And then he backs away. John 13, verse 13 through 15 says this. He said to them, you call me teacher and Lord, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, if I then, your Lord and your teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I do to you. So, Pastor, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was showing us the importance not only of recognizing the needs, but of being faithful and humble and being willing to meet that need. Can you imagine how that example would have impacted Peter and John and Matthew and James and the whole group? I can't help but to wonder in First Peter when Peter would look at the believers years later and he'd say, clothe yourself with humility. Even as Christ was clothed with humility, could he not have envisioned that moment that would have stayed with him forever when Jesus humbled himself? That simple reality of how Jesus put the needs of them before his own is a powerful reminder to me that he was not worried about his position. He was not worried about his title. He was not worried about his place. He wasn't even worried about the suffering that was to come in that moment. His focus was on doing the will of the Father and serving and meeting the needs of those that were following him. May God help us in the same way to recognize that we have a calling, we have gifts, we have responsibilities, that we each can do our part in edifying and meeting the need and building up and encouraging others in the body of Christ. Please understand this morning when it comes to serving the Lord, it is our invitation. What a privilege it is in serving God. What a privilege it is at times when God might use us to meet the need. What a privilege it is to recognize that we're literally partnering with God. We're becoming the hands and feet of Jesus. We're doing what he's called us to do to build up the body of Christ. I want you to hear loud and clear from me, friend, when it comes to Crosslink and what God's doing. It is amazing to see how God has been working here. Amen. It has been so amazing. We give him the glory for it. It has been so encouraging to see how God has been working in so many different ways. But throughout the course of life and ministry, there are times that you will hear us present various needs within the body or various needs of service and opportunity, various needs of giving at times, or various needs of people within our body. And please, I want you to hear loud and clear. We don't bring those needs because we need you to fill a spot. We don't bring those needs because because of some vain manipulation. No, when those needs are brought, we are literally giving an invitation for us to partner together in the work that God has called us to do. It's an invitation to edify the body of Christ. I want you to see, though, secondly, something else that happened, and I'm going to move quickly in this final point. We see the evidence of a spirit-filled life as they are speaking the word of God with boldness. They're surrendering all they had to the Lord. And then, of course, in this moment, they are serving one another with gladness. You don't hear one act of resentment, regret, oh, this burden. You, know, you don't hear any of that. But I want you to see the contrast in the evidence of a selfish life. Acts chapter 4 ends with this description. We see what the early church was doing, but then we were told specifically about one individual A man by the name of Joseph, a man that the disciples, the apostles, called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He did something very unique in that, and it just kind of brings attention to him in this moment, that he had a tract of land. Even he sold it. He brought the proceeds. He literally brought it to the apostles' feet for the purpose of meeting the needs within the body. Now, there's been a lot of debate about why did they literally highlight this individual. We're not completely sure, but I would say this. Barnabas was a Levite which means that according to his custom, he should not own a piece of land. We don't know if he bought it himself. Somebody gave it to him. We don't know. But as a Levite, he was in a place where he was largely to depend upon the offerings of the Jewish people. He wasn't supposed to have land. Even Barnabas in this moment had such a burden and a heart for the Lord and a heart for the needs within the body that he took this piece of land, he sold it, brings the proceeds, and says, hey, meet the need. This land would have been like his security blanket, basically. Like, hey, if it doesn't work out for me in this context, I've got something to fall back on. But in this moment, what he's in essence saying is he's showing such a faith in God, such a trust in God, such an obedience to God that he takes it, he sells it and says, listen, meet the needs. Well, when that happens, not only was God at work in his life, unfortunately, Satan began to work in the heart and life of someone else. Now, I don't believe that Barnabas wanted to be seen for this act. In fact, when you read about Barnabas' life in the rest of the New Testament, it becomes very clear that He was behind the scenes. He was an encourager. Even when it wasn't popular, he wanted no attention. And yet, Scripture highlights the fact of what he did. When that happened, the Bible introduces to us two new characters named Ananias and Sapphira. Please do not name your children Ananias and Sapphira, okay? Three things we see about the evidence of a selfish life. Number one, a selfish life longs for attention. Now, we don't read this directly in the text, but in verse one, the Bible says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, it tells us a contrast is coming. There's something that is different. I believe what's happening in this moment is now that Barnabas has given this incredible gift, the church is looking at him, frankly, with admiration. He's an encourager. He's a faithful part of the church. Now he is given sacrificially in this context. And I believe that the church is looking at him in some ways with a sense of admiration, a sense of appreciation. Uh, Maybe he was recognized in some way. We're not sure. And yet there was a, a sense of respect and love for this man named Barnabas. And it seems at least in that moment that what is happening then is with Ananias and Sapphira that Satan is beginning to fill their heart and mind with all sorts of lies and temptations. Ananias you can get that kind of attention people will love you that way they'll look up to you that way oh look at how your respect will grow here in the church Ananias even the apostles will treat you better Ananias everyone will love you for your act of sacrifice in other words I believe that the lies and the temptations Satan brought fed a heart of pride Remember the Bible tells us in Proverbs 8, verse 13, that pride and arrogance in the evil way, the perverted mouth, God says very strongly, I hate. Proverbs 6, there are several things that the Bible says that God hates. The very first one is it's the pride of life. In this moment, I believe Ananias and Sapphira, frankly, were full of themselves. And frankly, he wanted to be accepted and he wanted to be approved and he wanted to be loved and appreciated and admired. And so this temptation... This selfishness, this selfish life was longing for attention. Notice in the scripture, God never told Ananias to sell the land. God never told Ananias what to do with the funds. God never told Ananias what to do. But instead, Ananias in that moment began to have all these thoughts in his mind. You know what? I got this piece of land. I don't really need it. You know what? If I sell it and do this, then I will get the same type of response that Barnabas has gotten. He longed for attention. The selfish life not only longs for attention, but it looks out for self. Not long for attention. Well, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do what works best for you, what's easiest for you, what gets you the best situation. The Bible tells us in verse 2 that Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, it went something like this. The Bible tells us that they sold this piece of land. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a piece of land or a house or something to sell that's a burden to you, you know that it's a time of celebration when you finally sell it. Anybody ever been there before? Sells it, but guess what? You get the impression here that he sold it for more than what he thought he was going to. It's a good deal. It's a good day when you make more money than you were anticipating making. And that's likely what happened. And so here's the deal. In this moment, remember, this is not God's plan or God's will. This is their plan. It's about their attention. It's about themselves. So they're looking out for themselves. And Ananias and Sapphira, they look, and they say, wait a second. Look how much money we got for this land. How much do you think we need to give to be respected and appreciated like Barnabas? What's the least we can do to have an appearance of blessing God. And how much can we keep to ourselves? I I think in this moment, literally Ananias is like, this is sweet. This is like, this is two birds with one stone. In this one moment, I can keep what I want and I can give over here and be appreciated and respected for it. How awesome is that? God, thank you for your blessings. It's kind of the way he's viewing this thing. Why? Because the selfish life It not only is looking for attention, but it looks out for self. I want to remind us this morning that when it comes especially to our giving, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. For truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand even know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, hey, this is awesome. We can do what we want to do. We can do what's best for us because frankly, They didn't say this, but with their actions, they were saying, we're not doing this for the Lord. We're not doing this for his church. We're not even doing this for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're really doing it for ourselves. Sadly, their actions would mimic the words of a country song. It was all about me. It was all about my. It was about number one. Oh, my, oh, my. What I think, what I like, what I want, what I know, what I see. And that was what was in Ananias' heart and life. That's what's in the heart and life of many believers here today. And so ultimately leads to a final thing, and that is that this selfish living leads to further sin. Hang with me for just a moment. It leads to further sin. So they hold to themselves what they want. They figure out what little they need to bring to have this acceptance from the church, so to speak, and this admiration. And then Ananias goes to the church. He goes and the Bible tells us very, very clearly that he went, he brought it to Peter, he brought it to the apostles' feet and he says, here's, here's the gift. And he tells him the story and I think he's building this thing up. Hey, God told me to sell this piece of land and, and God showed his favor. God gave us more money than, than we anticipated. And here it is, it's all right here. This is what God wants me to do. I'm being obedient. And I think in that moment, Ananias, he expected to hear Peter commend him. Oh, Ananias, God bless you, my brother. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think that Ananias expected the entire church to celebrate and applaud him. Wow, wow. What an incredible act of service and generosity. That's what he expected. But instead, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, discerned and knew exactly what was going on. Peter asked in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? What does he conclude? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to who? God. Why? Ananias, this whole situation has not been about God. Ananias, this whole situation has not been about the church Ananias, why have you lied to God? This whole thing is about you. Why have you put on this mask and this fake religious hypocrisy? Why have you acted a certain way to get the approval of man? When God is looking at the heart, Ananias, God knows that you're lying. He knows that you're trying to look a certain way. He knows that you're doing this for the approval of man. God is looking at the... Why have you accepted this lie against God? Those are the last words that Ananias would hear. For the Bible says that he fell to the ground and breathed his last. The young men of the church got up, covered him, took him outside and buried him. I don't think those young men anticipated going to church and having a burial that day, but that's what happened. Can you imagine the scene as Sapphira, his wife, is back home, man, she's, she's getting dressed and she's getting everything all nice and neat and organized, and, and she, she comes to the church three hours later. Please don't ever complain about the length of a sermon at Crosslink, okay? <laughs> three hours later, I'm ticking at you. Three hours later, she shows up with the same lie, the same intent. She has no idea what's happened to her husband. And she walks in, and Peter immediately calls it out. Is it true? I think she came showing up thinking, oh, they're going to praise me. They're going to applaud me. All the church is going to love me for what I've done. And again, it's about her. And of course, Peter looks at her, and he basically says, the same hands that just buried your husband are about to bury you. And instantly, she dropped dead. So pastor, are you trying to scare us? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not. But I think the Bible is giving us a clear picture in the early church. When we love the Lord and love one another as we ought, with a commitment to build up the body of Christ, it is a beautiful thing that God blesses in extraordinary ways. It really is. At the same time, when we are selfish, looking out for what we want, doing what I want to do, when we put on a religious mask of acting to be a people who truly love and serve Jesus and yet pridefully hold all of our wants, titles, privileges, positions to ourselves, and we look out for ourselves, I think God shows us how seriously he takes sin. Think of this for just a moment. In Acts chapter four, Satan brought incredible persecution against the church with all kinds of threats and he had no victory at all. But when he couldn't devour it like a lion bringing persecution, you know what he did instead? He brought simple, subtle deception and division into the church to the temptations and the lies that he spoke into the heart and mind of Ananias and Sapphira. First time we see sin in the early church is right here in Acts chapter 5. And God says, I won't have it. God judges the sin. There's a reverence that comes over the whole church. And the end result in verse 14, as the apostles began preaching the gospel again, as miracles and signs and wonders continue to happen, verse 14, guess what happens? And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. So pastor, what are you saying today? Here's what I'm saying today. Many of us today profess faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again from the grave, that he is the Lord and Savior. And many of us profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But today, there may be some of us here today, like Ananias and Sapphira, who are merely going through the motions. We put on an outward appearance. There's a a beautiful facade But in our hearts and lives, we know nothing of a personal relationship. I want you to know this morning, we are saved not by good works. We are saved not by going to church. We are saved not by any number of good things that you might have been taught growing up or you might believe in your own heart and mind. The only way we are saved is by God's grace through faith. Ananias and Sapphira at any moment in that moment could have stopped, could have repented of their sins, could have ask God for his forgiveness to cleanse them and save them at any moment, but they refuse and they experience God's severe judgment. I wanna remind us this morning, God looks at and knows and sees the heart. So this morning, if you're not genuinely saved, you can be by repenting of your sin and by believing in Jesus Christ, and I invite you to be. I want you to be. You don't have to live a lie any longer. But secondly, if you're here today and you know without a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I simply want to ask you, how are you edifying and building up the body of Christ? It's been a long time since Acts chapter four to now where we live in 2019. But God is still working and God is still moving and God can still enable us and empower us to live our life with the same type of commitment to his word, the same type of surrender to him in all things, but also the same type of serving one another with gladness. And my hope and prayer at a, as a church Crosslink, that we will do just that. And that as we serve the Lord and as we love one another, God would make us a lighthouse on this hill, exalting the name of Jesus Christ so that men and women and children are saved, lives are changed for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I pray, God, today that we would respond with obedience today to the truth of your word. God, would you convict us right now? Would you help us right now to see what you're wanting us to do? I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.